Welcome to Jaded YA Reads, a YA read-aloud podcast for teens, tweens, and adults, brought to you by the Wells Public Library. This season, we'll be reading The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Chapter 2 Up jumped Bilbo, and putting on his dressing gown, went into the dining room. There he saw nobody but all the signs of a large and hurried breakfast. There was a fearful mess in the room, and piles of unwashed crocks in the kitchen. Nearly every pot and pan he possessed seemed to have been used. The washing up was so dismally real that Bilbo was forced to believe the party of the night before had not been part of his bad dreams, as he had rather hoped. Indeed, he was really relieved, after all, to think that they had all gone without him, and without bothering to wake him up. But with never a thank you, he thought. And yet, in a way, he could not help feeling just a trifle disappointed. The feeling surprised him. Don't be a fool, Bilbo Baggins, he said to himself, thinking of dragons and all that outlandish nonsense at your age. So he put on an apron, lit fires, boiled water, and washed up. Then he had a nice little breakfast in the kitchen before turning out the dining room. By that time, the sun was shining and the front door was open, letting in a warm spring breeze. Bilbo began to whistle loudly and to forget about the night before. In fact, he was just sitting down to a nice little second breakfast in the dining room by the open window when in walked Gandalf. My dear fellow, he said, when are you going to come? What about an early start? And here you are having breakfast or whatever you call it at half past ten. They had left you the message because they could not wait. What message? said poor Mr. Baggins in all in a fluster. Great elephants, said Gandalf. You are not at all yourself this morning. You have never dusted the mantelpiece. What's that got to do with it? I have had enough to do with washing up for fourteen. If you had dusted the mantelpiece, you would have found this just under the clock, said Gandalf, handing Bilbo a note, written, of course, on his own notepaper. This is what he read. Thorn and company to burglar Bilbo greeting. For your hospitality, our sincerest thanks and for your offer of professional assistance our grateful acceptance. Terms, cash on delivery, up to and not exceeding one-fourteenth of total profits, if any. All traveling expenses guaranteed in any event. Funeral expenses to be defrayed by us or our representatives, if occasion arises and the matter is not otherwise arranged for. Thinking it unnecessary to disturb your esteemed repose, we have proceeded in advance to make requisite preparations and shall await your respected person at the Green Dragon Inn, Bywater, at 11 a.m. sharp, trusting that you will be punctual. We have the honor to remain yours deeply, Thorn and Co. That leaves you just ten minutes. You will have to run, said Gandalf. But, said Bilbo, no time for it, said the wizard. But, said Bilbo again, no time for that either. Off you go. To the end of his days, Bilbo could not remember how he found himself outside without a hat, a walking stick, or any money, or anything he usually took when he went out, leaving his second breakfast half-finished and quite unwashed up, pushing his keys into Gandalf's hands, and running as fast as his furry feet could carry him down the lane, past the great mill, across the water, and then on for a mile or more. Very puffed he was when he got to Bywater just in the stroke of eleven, and found he had come without a pocket handkerchief. Bravo, said Balin, who was standing at the inn door looking out for him. Just then, all the others came round the corner of the road from the village. They were all on ponies, and each pony was slung about with all kinds of baggages, packages, parcels, and paraphernalia. 
There was a very small pony, apparently for Bilbo. Up you two get, and off we go, said Thorin. I'm awfully sorry, said Bilbo, but I have come without my hat, and I have left my pocket handkerchief behind, and I haven't got any money. I didn't get your note until after 10.45, to be precise. Don't be precise, said Dwalin, and don't worry. You will have to manage without pocket handkerchiefs and a good many things before you get to the journey's end. As for a hat, I have got a spare hood and cloak in my luggage. That's how they all came to start, jogging off from the inn one fine morning just before May, on laden ponies, and Bilbo was wearing a dark green hood, a little weather-stained, and a dark green cloak borrowed from Dwalin. They were too large for him, and he looked rather comic. What his father Bungle would have thought of him, I daren't think. His only comfort was that he couldn't be mistaken for a dwarf, as he had no beard. They had not been riding very long when up came Gandalf, very splendid on a white horse. He had brought a lot of pocket handkerchiefs and Bilbo's pipe and tobacco. So after that, the party went along very merrily, and they told stories or sang songs as they rode forward all day, except of course when they stopped for meals. These didn't come quite as often as Bilbo would have liked them, but he still began to feel that adventures were not so bad after all. At first they had passed through Hobbitlands, a wide, respectable country inhabited by decent folk with good roads an inn or two, and now and then a dwarf or a farmer ambling by on business. Then they came to lands where people spoke strangely and sang songs Bilbo had never heard before. Now they had gone on far into the lone lands, where there were no people left, no inns, and the roads grew steadily worse. Not far ahead were dreary hills, rising higher and higher, dark with trees and some of them were old castles with an evil look, as if they had been built by wicked people. Everything seemed gloomy, for the weather that day had taken a nasty turn. Mostly it had been as good as May can be, can be, even in merry tales. But now it was cold and wet. In the Lone Lands, they had been obliged to camp when they could, but at least it had been dry. To think it will soon be June, grumbled Bilbo as he splashed along behind the others in a very muddy track. It was after tea time, it was pouring with rain, and had been all day, his hood was dripping into his eyes, his cloak full of water, the pony was tired and stumbled on stones, the others were too grumpy to talk. And I'm sure the rain has gotten into the dry clothes and into the food bags, thought Bilbo. Bother burgling and everything to do with it. I wish I was at home in my nice hole by the fire, with the kettle just beginning to sing. It was not the last time that he wished that. Still, the dwarves jogged on, never turning round or taking any notice of the hobbit. Somewhere behind the grey clouds, the sun must have gone down, for it began to get dark as they went into the deep valley with a river at the bottom. Wind got up, and willows along its banks bent inside. Fortunately, the road went over an ancient stone bridge, for the river, swollen with the rains, came rushing down from the hills and mountains in the north. It was nearly night when they had crossed over. The wind broke up the grey clouds, and a wandering moon appeared above the hills between the flying rags. Then they stopped, and Thorin muttered something about supper, and where shall we get a dry patch to sleep on? Not until then did they notice that Gandalf was missing. So far he had come all the way with them, never saying if he was in the adventure or merely keeping them company for a while. He had eaten most, talked most, and laughed most, but now he was simply not there at all. Just when a wizard would have been most useful too, groaned Dory and Nori who shared the hobbit's views about regular meals plenty and often. They decided in the end that they would have to camp where they were. They moved to a clump of trees, and although it was drier under them, the wind shook the rain off the leaves, and the drip, drip, drip was most annoying. 
Also, the mischief seemed to have got into the fire. Dwarves can make a fire almost anywhere out of almost anything, wind or no wind, but they could not do it that night. Not even Owen and Glowen, who are especially good at it. Then one of the ponies took fright at nothing and bolted. He got into the river before they could catch him, and before they could get him out again, Feely and Keely were nearly drowned, and all the baggage that he carried was washed away off him. Of course, it was mostly food, and there was mighty little left for supper and less for breakfast. There they all sat, glum and wet and muttering, while Owen and Glowen went on trying to light the fire and quarreling about it. Bilbo was sadly reflecting that adventures were not all pony rides in May sunshine when Balin, who was always their lookout man, said, There's a light over there. There was a hill some way off with trees on it, pretty thick in parts. Out of the dark mass of the trees, they could now see a light shining, a reddish, comfortable-looking light, as it might be fire or torches twinkling. When they had looked at it for some while, they fell to arguing. Some said no, and some said yes. Some said they could go and see, and anything was better than little supper, less breakfast, and wet clothes all night. Others said, These parts are none too well known, and are too near the mountains. Travelers seldom come this way now. The old maps are no use. Things have changed for the worse, and the road is unguarded. They have seldom even heard of the king round here, and the less inquisitive you are as you go along, the less trouble you are likely to find. Some said, after all, there are fourteen of us. Others said, where has Gandalf got to? This remark was repeated by everybody. Then the rain began to pour down even worse than ever, and Owen and Glowen began to fight. That settled it. After all, we have got a burglar with us, they said, and so they made off leading their ponies with all due and proper caution in the direction of the light. They came to the hill and were soon in the wood. Up the hill they went, but there was no proper path to be seen, such as might lead to a house or a farm, and do what they could, they made a great deal of rustling and crackling and creaking, and a good deal of grumbling and dratting, as they went through the trees in the pitch dark. Suddenly, the red light shone out very bright through the tree trunks not far ahead. Now it is the burglar's turn, they said, meaning Bilbo. You must go on and find out all about that light, and what it is for, and if it is all perfectly safe and canny, said Thorin to the hobbit. Now scuttle off, and come back quick, if all is well. If not, come back if you can. If you can't, hoot twice like a barn owl, and once like a screech owl, and we will do what we can. Off Bilbo had to go before he could explain that he could not hoot even once like any kind of owl, any more than fly like a bat. But at any rate, hobbits can move quietly in woods, absolutely quietly. They take a pride in it, and Bilbo had sniffed more than once at what he called all this dwarvish racket as they went along, although I don't suppose you or I would have noticed anything at all on a windy night. None of the whole cavalcade had passed two feet off. As for Bilbo walking primarily towards the red light, I don't suppose even a weasel would have stirred a whisker at it. So naturally, he got right up to the fire, for fire it was, without disturbing anyone, and this is what he saw. Three very large persons sitting round a very large fire of beech logs. They were toasting mutton on long spits of wood and licking the gravy off their fingers. There was a fine toothsome smell. Also, there was a barrel of good drink at hand and they were drinking out of jugs, but they were trolls, obviously trolls. Even Bilbo, in spite of his sheltered life, could see that. From the great heavy faces of them, 
and their size, and the shape of their legs, not to mention their language, which was not drawing room fashion at all, at all. Mutton yesterday, mutton today, and blimey if I don't look like mutton again tomorrow, said one of the trolls. Never a blinking bit of manflesh have we for long enough, said a second. What the hell, William, was I thinking? Off to bring us to these parts beats me, and the drink running short, what's more, he said, jogging the elbow of William, who was taking a pull at his jug. William choked. Shut your mouth, he said as soon as he could. You can't expect folk to stop here forever just to be et by you and Bert. You've et a village and half between yer, and second since we come down from the mountains. How much more do you want? And time's been up our way, when you're to thank your bill for a nice bit of fat valley mutton like what this is. He took a big bite off a sheep's leg that he was roasting and wiped his lips on his sleeve. Yes, I am afraid trolls do behave like that, even those with only one head each. After hearing all this, Bilbo ought to have done something at once. Either he should have gone back quietly and warned his friends that there were three fair-sized trolls at hand in a nasty mood, quite likely to try roasted dwarf or even pony for a change, or else he should have done a bit of good quick burgling. A really first-class and legendary burglar would at this point have picked the troll's pockets. It is nearly always worthwhile if you can manage it. Pinch the very mutton off the spits, purloined the beer, and walked off without their noticing him. Others, more practical, with less professional pride, would perhaps have stuck a dagger in each of them before they observed it. Then the night could have been spent cheerily. Bilbo knew it. He had read a good many things he had never seen or done. He was very much alarmed, as well as disgusted. He wished himself a hundred miles away, and yet, and yet somehow he could not go straight back to Thorn and company empty-handed. So he stood and hesitated in the shadows. Of the various burglarous proceedings he had heard of, picking the troll's pockets seemed the least difficult, so at last he crept behind a tree just behind William. Bert and Tom went off to the barrel. William was having another drink. Then Bilbo plucked up courage and put his little hand in William's enormous pocket. There was a purse in it, as big as a bag to Bilbo. Ha! he thought, warming to his new work as he lifted it carefully out. This is a beginning. It was. Troll's purses are the mischief. And this was no exception. Here, who are you? It squeaked as it left the pocket, and William turned round at once and grabbed Bilbo by the neck before he could duck behind the tree. Blimey, Bert, look what I've copped, said William. What is it? said the others coming up. Well, me if I knows. What are you? Bilbo Baggins, a, a hobbit, said poor Bilbo, shaking all over and wondering how to make owl noises before they throttled him. A burr a hobbit? they said a bit startled. Trolls are slow in the uptake and mighty suspicious about anything new to them. What's a burr a hobbit got to do with my pocket anyway, said William. And can yer cook em? said Tom. Yer can try, said Bert, picking up a skewer. He wouldn't make above a mouthful, said William, who had already had a fine supper, not when he was skinned and boned. Perhaps there are more like him around bout, and we might make a pie, said Bert. Here you, are there any more of your sort of sneaking around here in the woods, you nasty little rabbit? Said he, looking at the hobbit's furry feet, and he picked him up by the toes and shook him. Yes, lots, said Bilbo, before he remembered not to give his friends away. No, none at all, not one, he said immediately afterwards. What do you mean, said Bert, holding him right way up by the hair this time. What I say, said Bilbo, gasping, 
and please don't cook me, kind sirs. I am a good cook myself, and cook better than I cook, if you see what I mean. I'll cook beautifully for you, a perfectly beautiful breakfast for you, if only you won't have me for supper. Poor little blighter, said William. He'd already had as much supper as he could hold. Also, he had had lots of beer. Poor little blighter, let him go. Not till he says what he means by lots and none at all, said Bert. I don't want to have me throat cut in me sleep. Hold his toes in the fire till he talks. I won't have it, said William. I caught him anyway. You're a fat fool, William, said Bert, as I've said afore this evening. And you're a lout. And I won't take that from you, Bill Huggins, said Bert, and put his fist in William's eye. Then there was a gorgeous row. Bilbo had just enough wits left when Bert dropped him on the ground to scramble out of the way of their feet before they were fighting like dogs and calling one another all sorts of perfectly true and applicable names in very loud voices. Soon they were locked in one another's arms and rolling nearly into the fire kicking and thumping while Tom whacked at them both with a branch to bring them to their senses and that of course only made them madder than ever. That would have been the time for Bilbo to have left but his poor little feet have been very squashed in Bert's big paw, and he had no breath in his body, and his head was going round, so he lay there for a while, panting, just outside the circle of firelight. Right in the middle of the fight came up Balin. The dwarves had heard noises from a distance, and after waiting for some time for Bilbo to come back, or to hoot like an owl, they started off one by one to creep towards the light as quietly as they could. No sooner did Tom see Balin come into the light then he gave an awful howl. Trolls simply detest the very sight of dwarves, uncooked. Bert and Bill stopped fighting immediately, and a, a sack Tom quick, they said. Before Balin, who was wondering where in all this commotion Bilbo was, knew what was happening, a sack was over his head, and he was down. There's more to come yet, said Tom, or I'm mighty mistook. Lots and none at all it is, he said. No burrow hobbits, but lots of here dwarves. That's about the shape of it. I reckon you're right, said Bert, and we'd best get out of the light. And so they did. With sacks in their hands that they used for carrying off mutton and other plunder, they waited in the shadows. As each dwarf came up and looked at the fire and the spilled jugs and the gnawed mutton, in surprise, pop, went a nasty smelly sack over his head, and he was down. Soon Dwalin lay by Balin and Feely and Keely together, and Dory and Nori and Ori all in a heap, and Owen and Glowen and Biffer and Buffer and Bomber piled uncomfortably near the fire. That'll teach him, said Tom, for Biffer and Bomber had given a lot of trouble and fought like mad, as dwarves will when cornered. Thorin came last, and he was not cut unawares. He came expecting mischief and didn't need to see his friend's legs sticking out of sacks to tell him that things were not at all well. He stood outside in the shadows some way off and said, What's all this trouble? Who has been knocking my people about? It's trolls, said Bilbo from behind a tree. They had forgotten all about him. They're hiding in the bushes with sacks, said he. Oh, they are, said Thorin, and he jumped forward to the fire before they could leap on him. He caught up a big branch all on fire at one end, and Burke got that end in his eye before he could step aside. That put him out of battle for a bit, Bilbo did his best. He caught hold of Tom's leg as well as he could. It was thick as a young tree trunk. But he was sent spinning up in the top of some bushes when Tom kicked the sparks up in Thorin's face. Tom got the branch in his teeth for that and lost one of the front ones. It made him howl, I can tell you. But just at that moment, William came up behind and popped his sack right over Thorin's head and down to his toes. 
and so the fight ended. A nice pickle they were all in now, all neatly tied up in sacks with three angry trolls and two with burns and bashes to remember, sitting by them, arguing whether they should roast them slowly or mince them fine and boil them, or just sit on them one by one and squash them into jelly, and Bilbo up in a bush with his clothes and his skin torn, not daring to move for fear they should hear him. It was just then that Gandalf came back, but no one saw him. The trolls had just decided to roast the dwarves now and eat them later. That was Bert's idea, and after a lot of argument they had all agreed to it. No good roasting him now, he'd take all night, said a voice. Bert thought it was Williams. Don't start the argument all over again, Bill, he said, or it will take all night. Who's arguing, said William, who thought it was Bert that had spoken. You are, said Bert. You're a liar, said William, and so the argument began all over again. In the end, they decided to mince them fine and boil them, so they got a great black pot and they took out their knives. No good boiling them. We ain't got no water, and it's a long way to the well and all, said a voice. Bert and William thought it was Tom's. Shut up, they said, or we'll never have done, and you can fetch the water yourself if you say no more. Shut up yourself, said Tom, who thought it was William's voice. Who's arguing but you, I'd like to know. You're a booby, said William. Booby yourself, said Tom. And so the argument began all over again, and went on hotter than ever, until at last they decided to sit on the sacks one by one and squash them, and boil them next time. Who shall we sit on first, said the voice. Better sit on the last fellow first, said Bert, whose eye had been damaged by Thorin. He thought Tom was talking. Don't talk to yourself, said Tom. But if he wants to sit on the last one, sit on him. Which is he? The one with the yellow stockings, said Bert. Nonsense, the one with the gray stockings, said a voice like William's. I made sure it was yellow, said Bert. Yellow it was, said William. Then what did you say it was gray for, said Bert. I never did, Tom said it. That I never did, said Tom, it was you. Two to one, so shut your mouth, said Bert. Who are you a-talking to, said William. Now stop it, said Tom and Bert together. The night's getting on and dawn comes early. Let's get on with it. Dawn take you all and be stoned to you, said a voice that sounded like William's. But it wasn't. For just at that moment, the light came over the hill, and there was a mighty twitter in the branches. William never spoke, for he stood turned stone as, as he stooped, and Bert and Tom were stuck like rocks as they looked at him. And there they stand to this day, all alone, unless the birds perch on them, for trolls, as you probably know, must be underground before dawn, or they go back to the stuff of the mountains they are made of, and never move again. That is what happened to Bert and Tom and William. Excellent, said Gandalf as he stepped from behind a tree, and helped Bilbo to climb down out of a thorn bush. Then Bilbo understood. It was the wizard's voice that had kept the trolls bickering and quarreling until the light came up and made an end of them. The next thing was to untie the sacks and let out the dwarves. They were nearly suffocated and very annoyed. They had not at all enjoyed lying there listening to the trolls making plans for roasting them and squashing them and mincing them. They had to hear Bilbo's account of what had happened to him twice over before they were satisfied. Silly time to go practicing pinching and pocket picking, said Bomber, and what we wanted was fire and food. And that's just what you wouldn't have got these fellows without a struggle in any case, said Gandalf. Anyhow, you are wasting time now. Don't you realize that the trolls must have a cave or a hole dug somewhere near to hide from the sun in? We must look for it. They searched about and soon found the marks of trolls' stony boots going away through the trees. 
They followed the tracks up the hill until hidden by bushes they came on a big door of stone leading to a cave. But they could not open it, not though they all pushed while Gandalf tried various incantations. Would this be any good, said Bilbo, when they were getting tired and angry. I found it on the ground where the trolls had their fight. He held out a largish key, though no doubt William had thought of it very small and secret. It must have fallen out of his pocket very luckily before he was turned to stone. Why on earth didn't you mention it before, they cried. Gandalf grabbed it and fitted it into the keyhole. Then the stone door swung back with one push and they all went inside. There were bones on the floor and a nasty smell in the air. There were a good deal of food jumbled carelessly on shelves and on the ground, among an untidy litter of plunder, of all sorts from brass buttons to pots full of gold coins standing in the corner. There were lots of clothes, too, hanging on the walls. Too small for trolls. I'm afraid they belonged to victims. And among them were several swords of various makes, shapes, and sizes. Two caught their eyes particularly because of their beautiful scabbards and jeweled hilts. Gandalf and Thorin each took one of these, and Bilbo took a knife in a leather sheath. It would have made only a tiny pocket knife for a troll, but it was as good as a short sword for the hobbit. These look like good blades, said the wizard, half drawing them and looking at them curiously. They were not made by any troll, nor by any smith among men in these parts and days, but when we can read the runes on them, we shall know more about them. Let's get out of this horrible smell, said Feely, till they carried out the pots of coins and such food as was untouched and looked fit to eat, also one barrel of ale which was still full. By that time they felt like breakfast, and being very hungry they did not turn their noses up at what they had gotten from the troll's larder. Their own provisions were very scanty. Now they had bread and cheese and plenty of ale and bacon to toast in the embers of the fire. After that they slept, for their night had been disturbed, and they did nothing more until the afternoon. Then they brought up their ponies and carried away the pots of gold and buried them very secretly not far from the track by the river, putting a great many spells over them, just in case they ever had the chance to come back and recover them. When that was done, they all mounted once more and jogged along the path towards the east. "'Where did you go to, if I may ask?' said Thorin to Gandalf as they rode along. "'To look ahead,' said he. "'And what brought you back in the nick of time?' "'Looking behind,' said he. "'Exactly,' said Thorin. "'But could you be more plain?' "'I went on to spy out our road. "'It will soon become dangerous and difficult. "'Also, I was anxious about replenishing our small stock of provisions.' I had not gone very far, however, when I met a couple of friends of mine from Rivendell. "'Where's that?' asked Bilbo. "'Don't interrupt,' said Gandalf. "'You will get there in a few days now, if we're lucky, and find out all about it.' As I was saying, I met two of Elrond's people. They were hurrying along for fear of the trolls. It was they who told me that three of them had come down from the mountains and settled in the woods not far from the road. They had frightened everyone away from the district, and they waylaid strangers.' I immediately had a feeling that I was wanted back. Looking behind, I saw a fire in the distance and made for it. So now you know. Please be more careful next time, or we shall never get anywhere. Thank you, said Thorin. Chapter 3 they did not sing or tell stories that day, even though the weather improved, nor the next day, nor the day after. They had begun to feel that danger was not far away on either side. They camped under the stars, and their horses had more to eat than they had, for there was plenty of grass, 
but there was not much in their bags, even with what they had gotten from the trolls. One morning, they forded a river at a wide, shallow place full of the noise of stones and foam. The far bank was steep and slippery. When they got to the top of it, leading their ponies, they saw that the great mountains had marched down very near to them. Already, they seemed only a day's easy journey from the feet of the nearest. Dark and drear it looked, though there were patches of sunlight on its brown sides, and behind its shoulders the tips of snow peaks gleamed. Is that the mountain? asked Bilbo in a solemn voice, looking at it with round eyes. He had never seen a thing that looked so big before. Of course not, said Balin. That is only the beginning of the Misty Mountains, and we have got to get through or over or under those somehow, before we can come into wilder land beyond. And it is a great deal of a way, even from the other side of them to the lonely mountain in the east, where Smaug lies on our treasure. Oh, said Bilbo, and just at that moment he felt more tired than he ever remembered feeling before. He was thinking once again of his comfortable chair before the fire, in his favorite sitting room in his hobbit hole, and of the kettle singing, not for the last time. Now Gandalf led the way. We must not miss the road, or we shall be done for, he said. We need food for one thing, and rest in reasonable safety. Also, it is very necessary to tackle the misty mountains by the proper path, or else you will get lost in them, and have to come back and start at the beginning again, if you ever get back at all. They asked him where he was making for, and he answered, You are come to the very edge of the wild, as some of you may know. Hidden somewhere ahead of us is the fair valley of Rivendell, where Elrond lives in the last homely house. I sent a message by my friends, and we are expected. That sounded nice and comforting, but they had not got there yet, and it was not so easy as it sounds to find the last homely house west of the mountains. There seemed to be no trees and no valleys and no hills to break up the ground in front of them, only one vast slope going slowly up and up to meet the feet of the nearest mountain, a wide land the color of heather and crumbling rock, with patches and slashes of grass green and moss green showing where water might be. Morning passed, afternoon came, but in all the silent waste there was no sign of any dwelling. They were growing anxious, for they saw now that the house may be hidden almost anywhere between them and the mountains. They came on unexpected valleys, narrow with steep sides, that opened suddenly at their feet, and they looked down surprised to see trees below them and running water at the bottom. There were gullies that they could almost leap over, but very deep with waterfalls in them. There were the dark ravines that one could neither jump over nor climb into. There were bogs, some of them green pleasant places to look at with flowers growing bright and tall, but a pony that walked there with a pack on its back would never have come out again. It was indeed a much wider land from the ford to the mountains than ever you would have guessed. Bilbo was astonished. The only path was marked with white stones, some of which were small, and others were covered with moss or heather. Altogether, it was a very slow business following the track, even guided by Gandalf, who seemed to know his way around pretty well. His head and beard wagged this way and that as he looked for the stones, and they followed his lead, but they seemed no nearer to the end of the search when the day began to fail. Tea time had long gone by, and it seemed supper time would soon do the same. There were moths fluttering around, and the light became very dim, for the moon had not risen. Bilbo's pony began to stumble over roots and stones. They came to the edge of a steep fall on the ground so suddenly that Gandalf's horse nearly slipped down the slope. Here it is at last, he called, and the others gathered round him and looked over the edge. They saw a valley far below, 
They could hear the voice of hurrying water in a rocky bed at the bottom, the scent of trees was in the air, and there was a light on the valley side across the water. Bilbo never forgot the way they slithered and slipped in the dusk down the steep zigzag path into the secret valley of Rivendell. The air grew warmer as they got lower, and the smell of the pine trees made him drowsy, so that every now and again he nodded and nearly fell off, or bumped his nose on the pony's neck. Their spirits rose as they went down and down. The trees changed to beech and oak, and there was a comfortable feeling in the twilight. The last green had almost faded out of the grass, when at last they came to an open glade, not far above the banks of the stream. Hmm, smells like elves, thought Bilbo, and he looked up at the stars. They were burning bright and blue. Just then, there came a burst of song like laughter in the trees. Oh, what are you doing, and where are you going? Your ponies need chewing, the river is flowing. Oh, tra-la-la-lolly, here down in the valley. Oh, where are you going, with beards all a-wagging, no knowing, no knowing, what brings Mr. Baggins and Ballin and Dwallin down into the valley in June, ha-ha. Oh, will you be staying, or will you be flying? Your ponies are straying, the daylight is dying, to fly would be folly, to stay would be jolly, and listen and hark to the end of the dark to our tune, ha-ha. So they laughed and sang in the trees, and pretty fair nonsense, I dare say you think it. Not that they would care. They would only laugh all the more if you told them so. They were elves, of course. Soon Bilbo caught glimpses of them as the darkness deepened. He loved elves, though he seldom met them, but he was a little frightened of them, too. Dwarves don't get on well with them. Even decent enough dwarves, like Thorin and his friends, think them foolish, which is a very foolish thing to think or get annoyed with them, for some elves tease them and laugh at them, and most of all at their beards. Well, well, said a voice, just look, Bilbo the Hobbit on a pony, my dear, isn't it delicious? Most astonishing, wonderful. Then off they went into another song as ridiculous as the one I have written down in full. At last one, a tall young fellow, came out from the trees and bowed to Gandalf and Thorin. Welcome to the valley, he said. Thank you, said Thorin a bit gruffly, but Gandalf was already off his horse and among the elves, talking merrily with them. You are a little out of your way, said the elf, that is, if you are making for the only path across the water, and to the house beyond, we will set you right, until you are over the bridge. Are you going to stay a bit and sing with us, or will you go straight on? Supper is preparing over there, he said. I can smell the wood fires for the cooking. Tired as he was, Bilbo would have liked to stay a while. Elvish singing is not a thing to miss in June under the stars, not if you care for such things. Also, he would have liked to have a few private words with these people that seemed to know his names and all about him, although he had never seen them before. He thought their opinion of his adventure might be interesting. Elves know a lot and are wondrous folk for news, and know what is going on among the peoples of the land as quick as water flows, or quicker. But the dwarves were all for supper as soon as possible just then, and would not stay. On they all went, leading their ponies till they were brought to a good path, and so at last to the very brink of the river. It was flowing fast and noisily, as mountain streams do of a summer evening, when sun had been all day up on the snow far above. There was only a narrow bridge of stone without a parapet, as narrow as a pony could walk well on and over that they had to go, slow and careful, one by one, each leading his pony by the bridle. 
The elves had brought bright lanterns to the shore, and they sang a merry song as the party went across. Don't dip your beard in the foam, father, they cried to Thorin, who was bent almost to his hands and knees. It is long enough without watering it. Mind Bilbo doesn't eat all the cakes, they called. He is too fat to get through keyholes yet. Hush, hush, good people, and good night, said Gandalf, who came last. Valleys have ears, and some elves have over-merry tongues. Good night. And so at last they came to the last homely house, and found its doors flung wide. Now it is a strange thing, but things that are good to have and days that are good to spend are soon told about, and not much to listen to, while things that are uncomfortable, palpitating, and even gruesome may make a good tale, and take a deal of telling anyway. They stayed long in that good house, fourteen days at least, and they found it hard to leave. Bilbo would have gladly stopped there for ever and ever, even supposing a wish would have taken him right back to his hobbit hole without trouble. Yet there is little to tell about their stay. The master of the house was an elf friend, one of those people whose fathers came to the strange stories before the beginning of history, the wars of the evil goblins and the elves and the first men in the north. In those days of our tale, there were still some people who had both elves and heroes of the north for ancestors, and Elrond, the master of the house, was their chief. He was as noble and as fair in face as an elf lord, as strong as a warrior, as wise as a wizard, as venerable as a king of dwarves, and as kind as summer. He came into many tales, but his part in the story of Bilbo's great adventure is only a small one, though important, as you will see if we ever get to the end of it. His house was perfect, whether you liked food or sleep or work, or storytelling or singing, or just sitting and thinking best, or a pleasant mixture of them all. Evil things did not come into that valley. I wish I had time to tell you even a few of the tales, or one or two of the songs that they heard in that house. All of them, the ponies as well, grew refreshed and strong in a few days there. Their clothes were mended as well as their bruises, their tempers and their hopes. Their bags were filled with food and provisions light to carry but strong to bring them over the mountain passes. Their plans were improved with the best advice. So the time came to Midsummer Eve, and they were to go on again with the early sun on Midsummer morning. Elrond knew all about runes of every kind. That day he looked at the swords they had brought from the troll's lair and he said, These are not troll made, these are old swords, very old swords of the high elves of the west, my kin. They were made in Gondolin for the goblin wars. They must have come from a dragon's hoard or goblin plunder, for dragons and goblins destroyed that city many ages ago. This, Thorin, the runes named Orchrist, the goblin cleaver in the ancient tongue of Gondolin. It was a famous blade. This, Gandalf, was Glamdring, foe hammer that the king of Gondolin once wore. Keep them well. Whence did the trolls get them, I wonder, said Thorin, looking at his sword with new interest. I could not say, said Elrond. But one may guess that your trolls had plundered other plunderers, or come on remnants of old robberies in some hold in the mountains. I have heard that there are still forgotten treasures of old to be found in the deserted caverns of the mines of Moria since the Dwarf and Goblin War. Thorin pondered these words. I will keep this sword in honor, he said. May it soon cleave goblins once again. A wish that is most likely to be granted soon enough in the mountains, said Elrond. But show me now your map. 
He took it and glazed long at it, and he shook his head, for if he did not altogether approve of dwarves and their love of gold, he hated dragons and their cruel wickedness, and he grieved to remember the ruin of the town of Dale and its merry bells, and the burnt banks of the bright river running. The moon was shining in a broad silver crescent. He held up the map, and the white light shone through it. What is this? he said. There are moon letters here, beside the plain runes which say five feet high the door and three may walk abreast. What are moon letters? asked the hobbit, full of excitement. He loved maps, as I had told you before, and he also liked runes and letters and cunning handwriting, though when he wrote himself it was a bit thin and spidery. Moon letters are rune letters, but you cannot see them, said Elrond, not when you look straight at them. They can only be seen when the moon shines behind them, and what is more, with the more cunning sort, it must be a moon of the same shape and season as the day when they were written. The dwarves invented them and wrote them with silver pens, as your friends could tell you. These must have been written on a midsummer's eve in a crescent moon a long while ago. What do they say? asked Gandalf and Thorne together, a bit vexed perhaps that even Elrond should have found this out first. Though really there had not been a chance before, and there would not have been another one until goodness knows when. Stand by the grey stone when the thrush knocks, read Elrond, and the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. Durin, Durin, said Thorin. He was the father of the fathers of the eldest race of dwarves, the Longbeards, and my first ancestor. I am his heir. Then what is Durin's day? asked Elrond. The first day of the dwarves' new year, said Thorin, is as all should know the first day of the last moon of autumn on the threshold of winter. We still call it Durin's day, when the last moon of autumn and the sun are in the sky together. But this will not help us much, I fear, for it passes our skill in these days to guess when such a time will come again. That remains to be seen, said Gandalf. Is there any more writing? None to be seen by this moon, said Elrond, and he gave the map back to Thorin, and then they went down to the water to see the elves dance and sing upon the Midsummer's Eve. The next morning was a Midsummer's morning, as fair and fresh as could be dreamed, blue sky and never a cloud, and the sun dancing on the water. Now they rode away amid songs of farewell and good speed, with their hearts ready for more adventure, and with a knowledge of the road they must follow over the misty mountains to the land beyond.